This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jessica Sofer, author of Tomorrow There Will Be Apricots. Her work has appeared in Granta, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Vogue. Jessica Sofer earned her MFA in fiction at Hunter College. She teaches at Connecticut College and lives on Long Island. We began our interview by talking about her Iraqi father and American mother and growing up with parents from two different cultures. Well, I think despite my father being an immigrant and, you know, very much a first-generation immigrant, he came to the U.S. when he was 18 from Iraq. And um, my mother was the, I guess, granddaughter of Russian immigrants. And so I think despite them being different in their childhood experience, they both were very determined to build a life around the arts. My mother was um, a, a playwright, and she wrote children's books and cared very much about literature um, and arts in general, just sort of creativity. And my father was an artist himself um, and a landlord to make money. But that was sort of how they defined themselves more as more than, I think, culturally. Um, and so that was what I was raised with, was this kind of, aggressive form of creativity like it must you must be creative at the expense of everything else I wasn't allowed to use coloring books and you know I I had to read every night before I went to bed it was that sort of thing more than growing up in sort of a political or religious household that was the dominant feature I would say and how do you think that being you know the only one I think I mean it's sort of a question for therapy because it's such a big question but I think there are a lot of benefits to being an only child, obviously. You know, you have your parents' full attention. And um, for me, they were older parents, so they very much, they were relaxed parents, but they very much knew sort of what they wanted out of life, and they were sort of at peace with it. And so I grew up in this very kind of, like, calm adult household, and I think that had everything to do with being an only child. There wasn't this frenetic kid energy, and I was sort of never... My parents had no tolerance for teenage behavior. I never had, like, a teenage phase just because it wasn't – I couldn't say, oh, but my brother got to do this or, oh, but my sister got to do this. It it wasn't like that. It was like be an adult, be around the adults, or, you know, go read a book. And so how, um, growing up in this creative household, your mom was a playwright and an editor and a writer and your dad was a sculptor and a painter, how did you end up gravitating towards words? It's funny, I, I get asked this question a bit, and I it was, I never really thought about it. It wasn't like one day I decided, oh, this is, this is the direction I'm going to go in. I just remember being obsessed with words from a very young age. I remember being on the subway and reading every ad that was um, displayed above the seats. I just cared about words. They fascinated me. And eventually, I started taking Latin in school. I took Latin for maybe six years. And it felt, in a way, like an extension of that, like taking apart sentences, taking apart phrasing, taking apart even words and and making sense of them, translating them, is something that I just loved. And the rhythm of them, too. I remember being a child and seeing a phrase and deconstructing it and reconstructing it in my head um, just for hours. Like, the rhythm of it fascinated me, and I sort of became obsessed with it. Eventually, someone must have given me those magnetic 
refrigerator word poetry things where you can construct, I guess, poems from these little tiny words. And I did just constantly. I would sit on the floor and just make up phrases again and again and again. I never tired of it. So it's sort of, in a way, not something I ever thought about. It wasn't really a choice as much as just like a life. It's always sort of been my life. What do you think the relationship is between real life and fiction? I mean, there's all kinds of fiction writers, some that write about, you know, life on the moon and some who really write about where they grew up and have a lot of characters in their books that resemble characters in their lives. What is that for you? I think everything in in my life is sort of cannibalized for the work. And at some times more than others, for sure, there are some moments when I'm really into something, let's say, and I cannot go for a walk down the street without thinking about the work and how a leaf can contribute, a leaf that I look at on the ground can contribute to that work in some way. So there's a way in which everything is always at the mercy of of the writing and the story for me um, with varying degrees of intensity. But the writing has to come from somewhere. You know, the inspiration has to come from somewhere. And so even when one is writing about a character on the moon, a character who maybe isn't even human and maybe doesn't even have human emotions, the lack of those human emotions have to come from knowing one's human emotions. So it all it all comes from inside. I don't think anybody who writes gets to escape from the writing in any real, real way. Let's talk about your novel. That has an, an only child, Lorca, who is has an aloof mother and Lorca is a cutter and is really looking for love from her mother and ends up meeting Victoria who is um, originally from Iraq who um, her husband just died and they meet through cooking which is sort of ironic because Lorca's mother is a cook what was the genesis of this for you well it came from a short story I worked on while I was in um getting my MFA, it was a short story called Pain, and it was the recounting of a woman's life of pain from the time that she's a young girl to the time that she's an adult. Um, And eventually that's the the character that became Lorca, but the story was depressing. There was sort of no break from the sadness of it. In the end, she doesn't rehabilitate herself in any way, Um, and it ends on sort of a, a very low note. And so it didn't work because there was no lightness. And so when I decided I wanted to keep that character and bring her into a novel, she really was the inspiration for the novel. Her voice I liked and related to and wanted to to stay with me for a little while. Um, I knew that I needed to have a counterpoint to that sadness, and that felt like food to me. Food has always been sort of an important part of my life. My father's mother was a healer in Baghdad, and her kind of food know-how has guided my life in a lot of ways. So that was sort of the the genesis of of the story, but I think, you know, the thing that comes up a lot is the question about whether or not I was a cutter, and I never was. I was never addicted to pain. In fact, reading about pain, which I did a lot of, is hard for me. Writing about it for one reason or another isn't. So Lorca is not like me at all. My mother is the most generous human being I know, the kindest, the warmest. I wrote wrote an op-ed piece about how much I adore her, actually, and how she is not a cook in any way and never has been, and how that, too, has sort of informed my life. But I think the way that she is 
is so much unlike Lorca's mother in the narrative is very was very important to my writing. I felt like I could sort of forsake my own experience for the creation of something new. That sort of goes back to what we were discussing earlier about how one can extract oneself from the writing and sometimes has to. It's a, it's a great gift in a way to be creating something that's completely independent of one's own experience. Um, you can really just fly. Was there a question that you were trying to answer when writing this book? A lot of times I talk to authors and they say that they write sometimes to figure something out, something's nagging at them. Was there something nagging at you with this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's a question that I come back to again and again, and it's the question of sort of how do we live in this world? It sounds like a, a very big question, but I think in particular it's about death. I mean, I, I'm obsessed with death. I, I can't get my head away from it ever. Um, and I think both characters, Lorca and Victoria, are sort of looking at death from two very different points. Lorca, by cutting herself and seeing the blood, is constantly sort of flirting with the notion of death, even though, even though she doesn't want to kill herself. That's not part of it at all for her. And Victoria's at the end of her life, and her husband has just died, and she's sort of looking at life and death in a very different way. But also she's, she's sort of on, on the brink of it in certain respects. And so I think that um, the question is, how do we live? How do we live happily? How do we live unburdened with this sort of doom, which sounds really, really negative? But I think it's really just a way... Um, to discuss coping. Like, that's that's what I, I really care about, is how we live and sort of cope in this world. It can be very painful and, and very short. Well, while you were writing this, your father was very sick. How did that affect the writing of it? In, in a lot of ways, I guess. In the beginning, I, I didn't really start writing until he passed away, but I decided that I wanted to write this Iraqi Jewish character because I wanted to maybe honor him in some ways, but also because I found the Iraqi Jewish culture just fascinating and underwritten about, and I thought that he can sort of he could inform the writing of that, um, but he couldn't in any way at all. So um, that did change my writing process, my research process drastically. But um, I think his getting sick. I mean, I, I, he was sick for the majority of my life in a lot of ways. Um, and so I've always been sort of acutely aware of my own mortality, the mortality of people around me, and the kind of ways that we tiptoe around death. I mean, I did on a very practical level, but um, but I imagine that we all do in one way or another. I don't know how much anybody else focuses on it, but it's there. It's constantly there, and, and we all just have to live with that. And how did that change you as a person and a writer, someone who you said that you're really fascinated with death when your father did finally die? I don't know if it changed the writing that much. I mean, I think the quietness of death is something that is very interesting. You know, it just, life just stops and there's there are no fireworks and there's no fanfare. It's just very quiet and things continue to move. I mean, I remember... Right after my father died, my mother called me, and I was driving. And the cars continued to go. My car continued to go. Nothing happened. Um, and I think that 
was an important part of writing this book for me, realizing how, um, you know, not only do we have to go on, but but it just does go on. And that's amazing to me. Life is so, it's so much, it's so important, it's all we have. And yet, when it goes away, it just goes away. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jessica Sofer, author of Tomorrow There Will Be Apricots. Well, these things that you're talking about, sort of this this fascination with death and how memory fits in, what's the struggle as a writer to put that into story and show, not tell? I mean, you could obviously just have Lorca say, oh, I'm in pain, and have Victoria say, oh, I'm not sure about my memory. But that's not how writing works. Is that a struggle for you? Well, I think part of it is not knowing. I mean, I, I never know exactly what I want to say. I don't know what apricot is supposed to say. I just know the emotions that are at the heart of it and the gist and the, the sort of emotions that I would like to maybe encourage in the reader. So more than anything, I, I'm not telling anyone anything. I don't necessarily care about teaching or having anyone learn. Who am I to even pretend that I know enough? to impart something on the reader in that way. So it has to come from a different place. I have to imagine the pain and go to the pain so I can maybe get some pain out of the reader, if that makes sense. I've also read that you're really interested in the concept of loneliness. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, I imagine that my greatest fear after death, or maybe even more so than death, because death isn't really painful the person who experiences it, at least in the traditional sense, is loneliness. Yeah, the idea of loneliness is just probably at the heart of a lot of, of writing, because writing is such a solitary act, and we as writers come up against it all the time. But more than that, it's so much a part of the human experience, and so much of Apricot is about getting out of that loneliness and finding a person who, who can help. Do you think sometimes that's easier to actually find with strangers than people you've known? Absolutely. I mean, I find that increasingly so. Yeah, the, the sort of kindness of strangers is amazing. I um, went to a book club recently, and I didn't know any of the people who were there. I had met one woman briefly, um, but I didn't know them in any kind of meaningful way. And they did this beautiful thing where they cooked things from the, the from apricots and they set the table in the way that they did in apricots and they played music as they did in apricots. I mean, everything was so thoughtful. And it had been many months that the book came out in April and this was just a couple of weeks ago. But for the first time, I really felt the impact of having written. Like, I think I've sort of coasted for a long time on the notion of having written a book and it being out in the world and, and that sort of being that, even though people have been very nice and very generous and, and encouraging and all of that. But I think seeing how these people that I don't know have really sort of been moved in a meaningful way radically, radically changed the way that I feel about this whole publishing process. It really just sort of brought me to my knees. I was so, so moved. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, they are strangers, and they have meant everything in a lot of ways. 
Was there a moment that was a hard decision point about your characters? Maybe your editor brought out something and you knew she was right, but it was hard to go there? Oh, yeah, there was a big, huge moment. I mean, um, my editor, when she signed me, basically wanted what happened on page 250 to happen on page 50. In the end, we settled on page 80, but, um, you know, I couldn't very well cut out 200 pages of the narrative. That would have cut out the whole book. And so there was sort of a lot of restructuring, a lot of um, heavy lifting, cutting and pasting in the biggest way imaginable. Um, And that was really, really hard, but it was so much what the book needed. I think previously the book had very much been about the journeys of Lorca and Victoria separately to find one another. In the end, I think the book is more about their journey together to find happiness, which is really what I think the book was meant to be about. But I think I spent a long time just trying to work out the characters themselves. Fortunately, my editor had, you know, the foresight to see that and, and, and a plan. Although I remember signing and thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Like, it's just going to be, you know, some moving of commas here and there. In the end, it was so much more than that. But I'm grateful for it. How long did that take? About a year. Were you getting impatient? Yeah. I mean, of course. Um, But it was hard work. I mean, it, it was hard to get impatient when it was just so hard and so much. And I think there was a moment in which I thought the really scary part is that only I can do this. You know, there's no one who can tell you to do it a different way, no one who can do it for you, because the story is really, you know, in in me. And that's a lot of pressure in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not as if anybody is sitting there waiting for my books to come out, but you realize the kind of the heaviness of that, of authorship in moments like that. Did you think of yourself differently as a writer, or did writing change for you when you were just writing for yourself versus once you knew you had a book contract? I don't know if I would say it changed when I had a book contract. I would say it changed when I decided that I kind of wanted to make a profession out of this. I mean, and that was in graduate school, I would say. But, you know, once the notion of audience really comes up, it's hard to forget about it and ignore it. But it's crucial. You know, equally, it's important because you have to think about those sorts of things. You have to think about the experience of the reader. But at the same time, you can't because it in, infringes on that that freedom and that creativity that's crucial. You know, you need that. So it's really about finding a balance. I think in the initial stages of working on something, I try as much as I can to really just think about the character or the place and not about the aftermath. But eventually, you know, one has to think about that, and especially now, now that, that Apricot is out and now that I'm sort of interacting with readers in the way that I am, I'm so much more aware of that experience. And it's at once powerful and inspiring, but also, you know, a little bit terrorizing to my, to my creativity, I think because I'm so aware of that experience. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah. um, Recently, I've been more concerned than ever with the notion of death, but I think also the ways in which particular moments in time, and we don't always know them at those moments, can just um, change everything before and after and, and everything. 
So um, I was reading The Hours by Michael Cunningham, rereading it. I think it's a beautiful book. Um, and this particular section speaks to me. Yes, Clarissa thinks, it's time for the day to be over. We throw our parties. We abandon our families to live alone in Canada. We struggle to write books that do not change the world, despite our gifts and our unstinting efforts, our most extravagant hopes. We live our lives, do whatever we do, and then we sleep. It's as simple and ordinary as that. A few jump out of windows or drown themselves or take pills. More die by accident. And most of us, the vast majority, are slowly devoured by some disease or, if we're very fortunate, by time itself. There's just this for consolation. An hour, here or there, when our lives seem, against all odds and expectations, to burst open and give us everything we've ever imagined, though everyone but children, and perhaps even they, knows these hours will be inevitably followed by others far darker and more difficult. Still we cherish the city, the morning, we hope, more than anything for more. So tell me a little bit more about why this passage. I'm starting to work on a new novel. I haven't really put pen to paper um, in any big way quite yet. I'm still doing notes. But it's very much about um, a moment that changes everything uh, and for everyone involved. And um, I think there's a real sort of beauty in that. And it's so much what life is. Uh, The moments, as you know, as I just read about, that just change things and break things open and and the sort of fireworks. I said before that, you know, there are no fireworks in death, but maybe there are fireworks in life, and that's what we live for is those moments. Um, And he puts it so beautifully, I think, and and, um, so astutely. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you thought was hard to write or something that changed or something you succeeded at. Um, So I wrote this story called How to Be a Man, and it's short, um, and it's set up in three sections. Uh, I've always been very concerned with um, ideas of of structure, and in the next novel, I think I was a little bit afraid to really play with structure in in Apricot, but in the next one, I think um, I'll, I'll be a little bit braver. So this story is set up in three sections, um, and it's called How to Be a Man. First, meet her at the flower farm. Meet her when you're high. Meet her as you're staring at the 15 varieties of purple plants, and her voice is kind and firm. Those ones smell amazing, she says, but they won't last. Take her to dinner. Take her to concerts that she will enjoy more than you. Take her to meet your friends, and take it to heart when their wives whisper that she's perfect. Let her cook for your father. Let her knit him a scarf. Let him be sweeter than he ever was to you or your mother. He is so lost without her, she says, washing your father's dishes and missing the point. Wish that she understood grief. Wish that you didn't. Wish you'd known to ask your mother if she was happy all those years or if she would rather have been alone. Marry her because her genes are not riddled with depression. Marry her because you make her unlonely. Marry her because you don't believe that anyone will love you more than she does. Stay with her because of the kids. Stay with her because she shuts her eyes when you kiss. Stay with her because on your 20th anniversary, she will look at you like she still believes. Forgive her because she never turned on you. Forgive her because your children do not see the world as you do. Forgive her because she let you be and she forgave you. Second, again at the flower farm, meet her as she's staring at those purple plants, hands and fists, 
and you realize how long you've been waiting for something like violence. Meet her as your wife is nearby, organizing and reorganizing the receipts in her purse. Meet her when it feels like you've stopped making memories, when it's too late for something like this. Take her to the woods where she screams threats into the trees. Take her to the cabin where you get drunk and honest. Take her to the ocean where you talk to your mother and watch her take her clothes off in October and swim. Take her, take her again. Let her tell you the truth about yourself. Let her be the reason you run. Photograph, tell your father what you really think. Let her make memories and make everything hurt more, hurt less. Wish fear could stop you. Wish it was only about risk. Wish you wanted to take your wife to that barbecue place, that country, that abandoned house with all the windows. Wish you knew which was worst, to be her or her or you. Wish you knew what your mother would say. Wish you could stop with all the goddamn wishing. Don't marry her because of the kids. Don't marry her because it cannot possibly last, and what if it did? Don't marry her because no one who has ever understood you has been able to love you still. Leave her because she cannot stop telling you who you really are. Leave her because you cannot stop believing her. Leave her because it is too much. It is too much. Forgive yourself because you always wanted a family. Forgive yourself because you've come this far. Forgive yourself because you lost your mother before you could ask her about hope. How much is reasonable? How much is too much? Third, meet her. That's it. Tell me a little bit about what you were thinking. I think um, something that I'm also interested, I think, is is uh, the idea that we only get to live one life. And I sort of find myself grieving over the lives that you can't live. I mean, I, I do, of course, I love my life. But I think sometimes I think, and it's only maybe natural as, as a writer, um, about all the other stories, you know, the possibility for other stories. I can never stop thinking about that. And it's sad in a lot of ways. Well, where do you write? For the most part, I write at the East Hampton Library, which um, is this beautiful place on eastern Long Island. Uh, we just moved out here full-time from New York City. And um, it's a quiet place and uh, gorgeous. Robert Stern designed it. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't really ever get away from writing, particularly when I'm in the thick of something. Um, sometimes if I've really closed the door on a project, like if I've sent something off to an editor and it's going to be published and I know that, then I can feel a little bit more distractible. Um, and in those moments, uh, yoga. I do a lot of yoga, and um, I walk on the beach with my dog, that sort of thing. But it never really gets shut off. I wish there was a way. I wish I knew how to do that, but I don't. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My editor, Jenna Johnson at Houghton Mifflin, and also my uh, agent, Claudia Ballard at William Morris. They're really, really smart women, um, and I find that they often know what I want to say better than I do. How have you dealt with rejection? I've been really lucky to not have to deal with a lot of, of rejection. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's the world telling me something because I don't think I would be terribly good at it. Because I find that no matter what, it never feels like enough. Even as people sort of seem to love the novel, um, it just it always hurts. They, it can never be the right thing or enough of the right thing. I guess, 
and that sounds awful, but I guess it has to do with it being so personal, the writing being so personal, not autobiographical, but coming from a personal place. And so it's just hard, no matter what the opinion is, it's, it's hard. But I'm, I'm really, really grateful for all the positive stuff. And for the negative stuff, it hurts. There's no other way to say it. What is your favorite word? Melancholic. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jessica Sofer, author of the novel, Tomorrow There Will Be Apricots. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.